Good morning, I'm Brandon, one of the pastors. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to John's Gospel as we look at this, uh, this book together. If you think of uh, reading John's Gospel as, I don't know, eating a meal or enjoying a feast, this introduction that we've been looking at in verses 1 to 18 is kind of where he sets the table for us. Or you could think of it as an appetizer. He's giving us a taste of what's coming. He's building our categories, our expectations, whetting our appetite to want more. And as he kind of rounds out his introduction, he draws our attention in these closing verses to one of the deepest mysteries and most glorious realities of the Christian faith, what we call Christ's incarnation. How does the God of the universe, the one who made all of this, who spoke it all into existence, who sustains every molecule and every galaxy, whose will is unstoppable, whose plan to make a name for himself and to redeem a people for himself cannot be thwarted, whose glory is unsearchable and without rival, how does that God ultimately make himself known to us? It's not through a text or an emoji. It's not through a snap or a meme. It's not a Zoom call or even as an avatar in the metaverse. It's not even just his miracles or his prophets or his scriptures, though he does truly make himself known in those ways with Scripture as that final abiding revelation. But the ultimate way, the climactic, preeminent self-disclosure of our God is through a person, through a flesh and blood person, the person of his eternal son, Jesus, who took on human flesh and dwelt among us. As the incarnate word, Jesus reveals the glory and grace of God in a new and climactic way. And that's John's final point in his introduction as he prepares us for the story that we're going to read, for the person that we're going to encounter in these pages. And and so what I want to do this morning as we kind of work through verses 14 to 18 is, is start with what it means that Jesus is God incarnate, the idea of the incarnation, that Jesus is God in the flesh. If we're going to understand what John has to say here and throughout his gospel, we need to wrap our heads around that idea as much as possible, Uh, this glorious idea of the incarnation. And then after we look at that idea itself, we're going to consider the impact of his incarnation, what it is he's accomplished by taking on human flesh. And John highlights two things in this section. You might have noticed uh, that in verses 14 to 18, John does something different that we have not seen him do yet in the introduction. He includes us. We have seen his glory. We have all received grace upon grace. That's how he describes the impact of Jesus' incarnation, this revelation of both glory and grace 
in a new and climactic way. And so we'll consider each of those in turn as well. But we'll start with the incarnation itself, the marvel and mystery that Jesus is God incarnate, that the Word became flesh. So if you look at at verse 14 again, John returns to the initial metaphor that he started his book with back in verse 1, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you uh, are either familiar with those opening verses or were with us a couple weeks ago when we looked at it, uh, you'll recall that, that John is asserting several things about this one who's called the Word. First, that he's eternal, that he was there in the beginning before any of this existed, at work in creation itself that he has enjoyed an eternal, intimate relationship with the Father. He is with God. And yet, at the very same time, he is God. The Word was God. He shares God's unique, divine essence and identity. So he's one with God and yet distinct from the Father, which is, you know, wandering into that mystery and and, and wonder of the Trinity, One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that was a lot to take in, in that first verse, right? We're just diving deep into theology uh, to understand John and what he says about Jesus. But, But then verse 14 really blows our mind even further. And the Word, this very Word who was with God and who was God, became flesh. He became human. The eternal Son of God who was at work in God's creation, who who shares his divine identity, steps into that creation himself and becomes part of it. This is what we call the incarnation, the incarnation, which kind of sounds like a flower or a breakfast shake or something you might order at Chipotle, right? Uh, But it's a theological word. It's a theological word that means to put on flesh, to put on flesh. That's what the eternal Son of God did when he was born into this world 2,000-some years ago. He took on human flesh. And John's language, the way he describes it here, is absolutely stunning. It's not just that God appeared to flesh or that he appeared like human flesh. The word became flesh, truly human, truly human, like us in every way except for sin. And he did this while still being truly God at the same time. Jesus was not a God who exchanged his deity so that he could become human and walk among us like the little mermaid or something who has to you know, give up being a mermaid to go on land. Uh, Nor was he a human who was so great and wonderful that he eventually became God. Nor was he some sort of part human, part God, like a, a demigod of some sort. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became human while still existing as God. He took divinity into his humanity. One person with two distinct natures. Which again, it's, it's, it's marvelous, it's mind-blowing, but it's true. He is true God and true human at the same time. 
And as hard as that is to wrap our heads around, this is the consistent witness of Scripture. In Matthew's Gospel, when the angel appears to Joseph to tell him that, that his, his uh, fiancée is pregnant and it's not some other guy, but rather that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, which took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin will be with child, will shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God stepping into his own creation and being among us. Or Colossians puts it this way, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Think about that. How do you fit the whole fullness of deity into one body? But that's what God has done through the incarnation. Or Hebrews, book of Hebrews tells us in chapter one that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, but also, according to chapter three, that since the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. That's why John the Baptist can say what he says in verse 15 in our passage, which kind of is an aside. It kind of breaks the flow of thought a little bit, but it's important to the overall argument here. And this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me. So Jesus is born after John. He launches his ministry after John. He ranks before me in priority because he was before me in preexistence. Jesus is this eternal son who is stepping into his own creation. He is God incarnate. The word who was with God and who was God became flesh. And as we're going to see in John's gospel, this is essential to God accomplishing his plan of salvation for us. Without the incarnation, there is no salvation. Without Jesus stepping into this world to redeem us and represent us, there is no salvation. And John, as he completes his introduction here, he summarizes the impact of Christ's incarnation in two ways, two critical ways, the first of which we see in verses 14 and 18. As the incarnate word, Jesus reveals God's glory in a new and climactic way. He reveals God's glory in a new and climactic way. Listen again to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So through Jesus stepping into this world, we are given a unique front row seat to behold the very glory of God. Now, what do we mean by glory? I mean, that, that's a word that, you know, as Christians, we, we use an awful lot, and then somebody asks you to define it, and it's kind of like, oh, how, how do you define it? What are we talking about when we talk about God's glory? 
One of the simplest ways to understand it is as his worthiness, his worthy reputation. And so the Hebrew word that gets translated as glory has this picture of weightiness or heaviness, of honor. And, and, and so it's the, it's the speak of glory is to speak of the honor, the substantial, all that is honorable, substantial, worthy of someone. And when you then speak of God's glory, you have to take that at this transcendent level that just explodes all of our categories because his glory is so incomprehensible. It's so unsearchable above us and beyond us and expansive and immeasurable and so intense. It's, it's like the glory of the sun. It's so comprehensive that we see everything by it. But if you look straight at it, it will undo you. It'll burn your retinas or whatever. That's the glory of God. The majesty, the beauty and worthiness of our God, which is revealed to us preeminently in his son, Jesus. And one of the ways that John helps us understand this glory that we get to behold through Christ is by anchoring this description in the categories of ancient Israel's experience with God in the Exodus. So back when Israel was enslaved in Egypt and the Lord raised up Moses and led them out and made them to be his covenant people, John draws on the imagery from that story as he makes God's glory known to us through Jesus. It's a, it's a way of saying that what God has done for his people in the past, he is doing in a new and complete way through his son. So for instance, when he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word that's translated dwelt there could be more rigidly translated as the word tabernacled among us. It's, it's the same word for setting up your tent, for setting up the tabernacle, that Old Testament tent of meeting where God dwelled with his people in a special way, where he made his glory known to them. And so what John is essentially saying here is that Jesus, by taking on flesh, by God coming down to this earth and being among us, Jesus is the new temple. If you want to go meet with God on earth and behold his glory, it's no longer about going to a certain place, but knowing a certain person. Jesus is this new temple. And John's going to pick that idea back up in chapter 2 when Jesus cleanses the temple and in chapter 4 in his conversation with the woman at the well. So, So we see Jesus tabernacling among us, God tabernacling among us through Jesus similarly. When John says that we have seen his glory, we're reminded of what Moses asked God to be able to do when he was on Mount Sinai with him. Please, show me your glory. That's, that's what Moses wanted to do. And he's up there interceding for Israel because even though they just got the law, it took them like 30 seconds to break it, and they made the, the golden calf and all of that. And Moses is pleading with the Lord for his mercy to not just wipe Israel away and start over. And and the Lord grants that mercy. And then Moses has the boldness to say, show me your glory. Let me see your beauty. And God grants his request only partially. He hides him in the cleft of the rock. He says, you cannot look at my face. You can only see my back as he lets his glory pass before him. And as that glory passes before him, what does the Lord do? He declares his name full of grace 
and truth. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And, and that phrase, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, captures the same ideas as full of grace and truth. Don Carson explains the two words that John uses, full of grace and truth, are his way of summing up the same ideas as steadfast love and faithfulness. The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, declaring his divine goodness, is characterized by grace and truth. That, that very same glory, that's what John and his friends saw when they beheld the word made flesh. The same glory. As the incarnate word, Jesus reveals the glory of God. And yet... He goes way beyond Exodus, way beyond anything Moses got to see or experience, because he's revealing God's glory, not just as a repetition, but in a new and climactic way. He's doing something new and something that completes the work of God. And so when John says in verse 18 that no one has ever seen God, and we're reminded of what God told Moses in Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live, where Moses then had to be shielded by the rock because he couldn't see the face. We're invited to look and gaze into the very face of Jesus. We get to see God and live because he's making his glory known through Christ. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The glory, I mean, just think of it. The glory that was hidden from Moses, the servant of the Lord, has been revealed to us through Jesus. It's incredible. And only Jesus can do this. Only the incarnate word, the living, breathing, self-revelation of God can make the Father known in this way. As one author explains, according to John, the Son alone has an unmediated and direct vision of God because the Son has been with the Father from the beginning. Only the one who is from God and who has been in the presence of God and is now ever at the Father's side can then in turn make God known. And the way he does this is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As we follow John's story through this gospel, we're going to see that, that his glory is revealed not simply in the miracle of the incarnation, though we certainly see it there, and not just through the various signs that Jesus accomplishes, though those do reveal his glory, and that's a big part of chapters 1 through 12. But the ultimate display of God's glory is nothing less than the cross of Christ. There's a play on words in John's gospel. Several times in the book, Jesus will talk about how he must be lifted up. So 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent, in, uh, the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Or chapter 8, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you, then you will know that I am he. 
Or chapter 12, 32. And I when, I, have, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So this repetition that Jesus must be lifted up. Well, as N.T. Wright explains, on one level, that refers clearly to the cross. Right? On the cross, Jesus is lifted up above the earth, lifted up to the place of shame, of, of hard and bitter agony, the place and posture which symbolized a world gone wrong. But at another level, at another level, this lifting up refers once again to glory. It means exaltation and glory. On the cross, Jesus is lifted up as the true revelation of God, lifted up in the supreme work of love, of gentle and heartfelt compassion to the place and posture which now symbolize the yearning love of the Creator for His lost and self-destructive world. As the incarnate Word, Jesus reveals the glory of God in a new and climactic way. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what God's been working toward. And yet, wrapped up in the unveiling of his glory is the imparting of his grace. And that's the second thing that John emphasizes as he introduces Jesus here, that as the incarnate word, Jesus imparts God's grace in a new and climactic way. And that's what we see in verses 16 to 17. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John's still working from the Exodus background here. Uh, We can see that in his reference to Moses. We can also see that in how he describes the source of God's grace, from his fullness. And that language of fullness there, that is also language of God's tabernacle or temple. In the Old Testament, when when God took up residence in the tabernacle, it's described as being filled with his glory. So Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. A glory of God that was visibly present with them and is now preeminently displayed in Jesus. And so from the fullness of God's glory that's now manifest in Christ flows the grace of God that enables us to become children of God. The unveiling of His glory involves the imparting of His grace. And and he describes that grace here in in a very interesting way. From his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace, or as some translations put it, grace in place of grace. And the phrase is is kind of tricky to understand. Uh, Is he talking about an abundant grace, so grace heaped upon grace, always overflowing and such? I mean, when we read through John, we're going to see an abundant grace that is overflowing. But the word he uses here, or the phrase, the way he phrases it, uh, is probably better translated as in the ESV footnote, grace in place of grace, or grace instead of of grace. There's some sort of fulfillment and exchange that's being described here. 
As Don Carson explains, it means that we have all received a grace in place of a grace already given. So there was already an expression of God's grace at work among his people Israel. And now there's a new grace that has dawned in Jesus Christ. And and verse 17 tells us exactly what those two graces are. For the law was given through Moses, that's a grace already given. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the new grace in place of the old. So Carson continues, in other words, the gift of the law was a gracious thing, a good and wonderful gift from God. Again, you go back to the story of Exodus. They did not earn the law. They didn't earn their salvation out of Egypt. God didn't say, here's my law, keep this, I'll be back to get you out. He rescued them by his grace. He gave them his law by his grace that they might be his people. And so the law was a gracious thing, a good and wonderful gift from God, but grace and truth par excellence came through Jesus Christ, not in the display of glory to Moses in a cave, but in the display of Jesus and the bloody sacrifice on the cross. The law covenant was a gracious gift, but now Jesus is going to introduce a new covenant, the ultimate grace and truth. And that's a grace that replaces that old grace. It's bound up with a new covenant. As the incarnate word, Jesus imparts God's grace to us in a new and climactic way. And as we work through John's gospel, we're going to see, we're going to see that unfold. We're going to see the wineskin of the old covenant being stretched and tearing and giving way to the new thing that God is doing through Jesus. And we see it in several ways. For instance, many of the signs that Jesus accomplishes through uh, especially the first 12 chapters of John, each of them are set in the context of some sort of either expectation or institution or festival of Judaism. And, And so Jesus is working these signs, and in each one, what John is showing us is that Jesus fulfills those institutions, those festivals. You think of chapter two in the wedding at Cana. You got these six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, and Jesus fills them full to overflowing with wine. He fulfills Israel's covenant, Israel's expectations by filling them full, but then also by fulfilling them, by completing them. Because once you've been purified by the blood of Christ, you don't need those stone water jars anymore. Jesus is doing a new thing. He is bringing God's plan of salvation to fruition. Similarly, the I am statements, the gospel of John is known uh, for the different ways that Jesus declares I am in, in, in some way. So I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, the true vine, and so on. Each of those I am statements, he's taking a metaphor from the Old Testament of God's promises to Israel and saying, you're looking at the fulfillment. I am that. Jesus is doing a new and climactic thing to accomplish God's work of salvation, all of his promises. And he's doing that not only to bring redemption to his people Israel, but to all who will believe in him, all who will believe. He came to his own 
and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who confess Jesus is king and savior, we can become children of God. And all of that's possible because the word became flesh. It's because the word became flesh. The eternal God, whose glory is above the heavens, came down and took frail humanity for us, for us. As the incarnate word, Jesus reveals the glory and grace of the Father in a new and climactic way. This is the Jesus that John wants us to encounter. This is the Jesus he wants us to meet and to know and to believe in as we work our way through the story in front of us. And really, if there's one major application from John's introduction, verses 1 to 18, it's keep reading the book. That's the main application. He wants us to meet Jesus, to encounter our Lord as we gather here on Sundays, as we gather in our small groups or around the dinner table or even just in our own personal time with the Lord, to keep reading John's gospel and encounter Jesus. And as we meet him, to behold his glory, to gaze upon it, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, and to receive his grace the grace of a new covenant secured for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. As one author reminds us, there is no disembodied way to behold the glory of the word or to receive God's life or to experience God's love. We must come to Jesus. We must come to Jesus. As he himself says later in chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know God, if you want to know his glory, his majesty, his mercy, his love, his justice, his kindness, look at Jesus. He has made him known. And so that's that's what I want us to give ourselves to in the weeks and months ahead, to studying him, to watching him, to listening, to savoring him with eager love and patient faith. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Gracious Father, what an incredible, marvelous gift is it that you would make yourself known to us through your Son. And Lord, that is, may we not take that for granted. You know, as we read through John's gospel and look at these stories in the weeks ahead, stories that some of us are so familiar with and we've heard a thousand times over, may we not take them for granted, but may we see your son with fresh eyes that we might see and savor you with fresh eyes. Lord, you are beautiful. You are glorious. We want to know and see you. Thank you that you have made yourself known in Christ. It's in his name we pray.